So I, I think, you know, one of the things I would say, you're right, I, I actually got my start in the field um, working with Lenny Garenti on aging in yeast, which at the time nobody cared about aging in yeast. Nobody, I think I think most of the field thought that we couldn't learn anything about the biology of aging in mammals from studying a single celled organism. We now know that's not that 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 we can. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I learned from that that process, and that was spending a lot of time at a microscope manually micro-manipulating daughter cells away from mother cells, hours and hours and hours. Um, what I learned from that were, were a couple of things. One, one lesson was sometimes you just got to buckle down and do the hard work if you want to get the answers at the end of the day. And I think one of the things I liked about studying longevity in yeast was we always got high quality data. So we always learned something. So, so I think one of the lessons I learned was that, um, when you design experiments, even if it's even if it's time consuming and tedious, as long as you're getting information out that's relevant at the end of the day, there's there's value there. And so I spent a lot of my graduate work doing those kinds of experiments. But you know, we I think we learned a lot of important a lot of important information from those studies. The other lesson I learned, which I think, and and we can talk more about this. Uh, maybe when we're talking about the million molecule challenge, I think the field in some ways has has drifted away from this lesson, which is that sometimes you need to step back and let the biology tell you what's important. I think too often um, we get so enamored with our models that that we sort of ignore everything else that's out there and in favor of what we think the model is telling us. And that can that can be fine when you're trying to do a very deep dive and your model is is already pretty well formulated. I think the question I would ask in the field of longevity in general is when we look at our sort of overall model of the biology of aging, how well formulated is it really? How much do we really understand? And if our understanding is limited, yet the field is very very narrowly focused on what we think we understand, we run the risk of missing the most important information that's out there. And so I think one of the things I, I really appreciated about the state of the field when I started was everybody knew we didn't know anything. And so people were looking as broadly as we possibly could to try to understand the biology of aging. And, and that is a very definite shift, I think, in the, the the paradigm structure of the field from when I was a graduate student to now, uh, away from the sort of broad-based discovery science to much more focused, detailed, mechanistic studies that are based on what I would argue is an incomplete model. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and I would add a, a corollary to that co the concept that you're unpacking here, that we only know so much. And if we only pursue what we know, we're going to be making less progress than if we look more broadly. I would say the more superficial and rudimentary our understanding in our models, the greater our susceptibility to confirmation bias. Yeah. <laughs> Which means when it comes to aging biology, <laughs> it's 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 about as deep as you get. Like we're really at the, I, I think Pedro et al., um, we're spot on in terms of, uh, I know, I think the, the hallmarks of aging are very useful, articulating uh, some, some things that are involved in biologic aging that uh, track with aging. And even it's not just if you intervene with some, it's not just if you um, uh, 
some of these things go wrong, uh, autophagy, uh, mitochondrial uh, dynamics, uh, the epigenetic drift, uh, epi uh, genomic instability, and so forth. All of these things, when we intervene, things get better. But when things get better, they tend to correlate with one another. It's cause and effect isn't clear, and there there are likely many others unknown. They aren't really biologic aging. They're just some. They're sort of descriptive involved, and we really need blind tools to guide us in the right direction for the parts that we're not seeing. Um, so I, yeah. I, I go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I, I think I, I mean I generally agree with that. I think we need both. Like I don't want to I don't want to suggest that we shouldn't be doing very detailed mechanistic studies on the hallmarks of aging because I think we should, and I think they I think they are important. They represent you know fundamentally conserved processes that are you know at least associated with the biology of aging. And I think you can make a pretty good case causal for at least some aspects of biological aging. So we absolutely should be spending time studying those. I, I would frame it more as I would also like to see more broad-based discovery science, you know, what I've called looking outside of the lamppost um, that, that isn't firmly centered on the hallmarks of aging or what we think our current mechanistic models are. Uh, and, and, and that's where I think the field has definitely shifted away. And, you know, there's so much that goes into this. This is a natural process for fields that, that mature. Um, so, so in some ways it reflects a maturation of the, the, the aging biology field. My concern, I guess would be, or one of, one of my concerns would be that that maturation happened maybe a little bit too fast in this field, because, you know, our understanding, again, at least in my opinion of the the biology of aging is still pretty rudimentary that again, if you become too focused too quickly, there, there's a real opportunity cost uh, associated with that. But I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that we shouldn't be studying those things. And I also think, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've started, you know, because I kind of like to, to catch people's attention. I've started comparing sort of the hallmarks of aging to a map of the known world in 500 BC. Like it's kind of this lot. funny graphic, right? Cause you look at the map and there's like this, this oversized Libya, this sort of vaguely Europe-shaped thing, and then Asia, which doesn't look anything like Asia, and then water all around it. And if you sail too far, you fall off the end of the earth, right? So, so I don't know that our, that our understanding of the hallmarks of aging are that rudimentary, but it wouldn't shock me if it was. And the point is, there's two points to this. One is we've got way more to learn about the biology of aging than we already know. I don't think anybody really would question that if they're being honest with themselves. So we we, we've got a lot to learn, but the information we've got can still be useful. In 500 BC, that map was very useful, right? So, so I think um, I don't. I, I think that we can use the hallmarks of aging, and we're learning about this. We're starting to make translational applications derived from the hallmarks of aging, or maybe more precisely, the network of interactions that underlies the hallmarks of aging. Those are the targets that people in the field are attempting to bring out of the laboratory and into the clinic as useful targets to improve health span and, and hopefully lifespan in people and companion animals. So it's a useful state of information, but we're going to struggle, I think, to do better than what historically we've done in the past if we don't start to also look beyond the hallmarks of aging. 
I, I think you put it best when you said we need both. I couldn't agree with you more. I think uh, grants and initiatives are sort of self-perpetuating. We kind of use the hallmarks to justify the next step. But at the other side of yeah. the coin, these are things that are real. And when we add knowledge, we tend to not add knowledge by building on what's known before. So we need one approach that builds on what's known before to add granularity, to look for contradictions and continues that evolution. And we need another line to say, are there things outside of the known map? So if we were to extend your analogy to that, that beautiful illustration you put on social media on what's now called X, I we should be looking for islands that are dis, discontinuous from the known map. It's not just the map might be, it might be a three-dimensional map or four-dimensional with time rather than a two-dimensional, but there might be areas that we don't even see the connections yet to. And one way to do that is through uh, the pipeline I'll be describing later, I'm going to hastily connect us because we have an ambitious agenda. In fact, I'm going to uh, build some excitement for the audience and uh, trepidation on the part of the um, moderator here uh, for <laughs> the ambitious agenda. It will give you more of a sense of the outline what I'm thinking. And then I'm going to dive us very deep in what would be the most heavily moderated part of part of this because it's a really detailed set of three case reports. And I think there's a lesson, uh, one lesson from the first two, or a few major lessons, and the third one is brief, but relates to an important area with regard to, regarding to rapamycin and immunity. So All right, the let's outline, do it. Yeah, we're gonna do it. All right, Matt. So, okay, so there's the, we're gonna talk about serolimus, otherwise known as rapamycin, and those unpublished uh, data from that. Uh, which is really uh, a record setting as far as uh, known records. And I'm sure records are uh, tend to be broken and that something is a record doesn't mean it's desirable. So anything anyone hears here is not an endorsement. In fact, we're going to be discussing doses of rapamycin that exceed levels that uh, there, uh, there was a case report of AFib on, which can cause stroke and, and that can be... Uh, if it's if it's causative, we don't know if it's causative. That's a whole other can of worms we're going to go down. How much we can infer or not from case reports and famous ones, including some very personal ones like Blagoscloni, what's happening with him right now. But um, okay, so for the rapamycin, that's the first part. I'm never going to say it except to say that these are unprecedented numbers in terms of one uh, one-time boluses. Another one was a question that was left unaddressed. From it was a murine model where they looked at immunity, but they stopped the rapamycin and let it wash out before then they tested right. immunity. This set precedent, of course, for Joan Manick's study in humans, where it was like. Um, you need half a milligram per day versus five right. milligrams versus uh, versus 20, everolimus, not serolimus for technical detail. Um, so this was actually, that's the third case. We'll discuss um, matters such as where are we on the road to translation now? Finding a balance between enthusiasm and realism in the longevity community, both within uh, those in the uh aging biology space. I, I see myself as part of, I don't have a lab. Uh, I'm a clinician, but I see- Neither myself, do I anymore. So it's okay. <laughs> We're in the same club. Well, I, see my, I, I mean, I see myself <laughs> as intermediate between the, the uh, vast majority of science communicators out there and someone who's run a full-time lab. And in some respects, I have some advantages because I don't have any students to supervise. I, I work part-time. I, I don't have any grants to write. So I can literally devote myself full-time 
starting from, you know, really basic knowledge from my BS in cell developmental biology through decades of uh, diving deep in the literature, educated by having a PhD in health services research and being able to uh, interpret data that I don't generate. But um, all of these things lend themselves to what I hope to make a unique contribution, which is very different than what I've done on, on Twitter, which is basically put out people are saying this. <laughs> Even when I strongly disagree, it's like as a service. I, I was already doing deep dives for myself. So I figured a low hanging fruit is like, isn't it selfish for me to read all this stuff and nobody else to know what's out there and like, and that way, science communicators and researchers and those with uh, new um, organizations and, and new new uh, foundations and industry can know what's happening so they can communicate, this is great, or this is so-so, or this is really bad. <laughs> I should be telling people <laughs> about this. I'm glad, boy, I'm glad I heard about this from Aging Doc One because this is really wrong. Um, in any case, so there's the rapamycin. There's, then there's the roads to translation. Then there is how do we responsibly communicate those tied in with before. Then there's the reproducibility issues, including CITP and uh, biomarkers, uh, not just limited to methylation markers, but omics, computing, the concept of health span. And from there, uh, we're, we're ending, bringing us back, closing the circle, uh, pragmatic moonshots and the million molecule challenge. So that's the agenda. And now we're going to- That's an ambitious agenda. On. As much <laughs> as we can, you know, we're not yeah, going to rush. We'll, we'll we're do enjoy it. enjoy ourselves. We're going to stop when we're, when we're tired, you know, or <laughs> we, we feel we're so inclined. This is where we're here to have fun and just share what, what we happen to discuss, like uh, having a meal or a fast together. Okay. So let's talk about rapamycin.